0: Morning, church. I'm Kevin. I'm the middle bobblehead. <laughs> um, some churches do oil paintings of their pastors, and we get, we get bobbleheads. So that's just kind of our vibe here, I guess. So, um, Needless to say, you can get a little confused about the Christmas story, especially uh, bobbleheads. But you see, we're going to to lean into what is probably the most confusing part of it, or where we probably often get it wrong, and that's with these, uh, these wise men, these, these magi. Uh, we sing the song, We Three Kings, and that's one of my faves. I love that one, except that it's like wrong right from the title. Uh, two thirds of it is wrong. Uh, we, uh, we, see, we call them kings, but they weren't kings. Uh, they were magi. They were um, astrologers. They were mystics. At best, they were advisors to the king, um, but they, they were not kings. And the Bible doesn't say, as mentioned in the video, that there were only three of them. We assume there's three because there were three gifts, but I think it's safe to say that some of the guys doubled up. Jesus might have gotten some duplicates. I hope he kept his receipts. Uh, I can't imagine you guys going, "Wow, you know, thanks, but I already got some gold. I really don't need this gold." So, um, and so these these not three not kings um, did not show up at the manger either, as we learned in the video. It's uh, likely that they came months, maybe even a year or two after the birth of Jesus, um, and so they are they are. Um, Uh, At best, it's, it's decorationally convenient for us to put them in the nativity, but they are part of the story. So it's good for us to put them there because this is one part of the story that shows us how it is that the world responded to the birth of Jesus. And so with that in mind, hear this public reading of God's word from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king... And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Um, well, Father, uh, this passage deserves better than I can give it. And so, Father, would these not be my words, but your words, and not my thoughts, but your thoughts. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, as I get older, and I hope you can relate, I, I find myself doing uh, uh, this a bit more where I maybe am asked my kids if they've seen my glasses, and it turns out that they're just like right on top of my head or uh, I'm looking for my cell phone, and it turns out it's like right in my pocket, or I'm looking for my car keys, and lo and behold, they are in my hand as I'm walking around, right? Um, I don't think this is a sign of age. Uh, I think this is a pretty common thing. I bet even some of the kids here might do it. Uh, Psychologists call this inattentional blindness. There was a study that was done uh, back in the late 90s about this where they, they had test subjects come in and watch a video, and in the video, um, there were uh, a bunch of students who were uh, passing some basketballs back and forth. Some of them were wearing white shirts. And the goal was uh, for you, the, the job was for the people observing to count how many times the ball was passed to someone wearing a white shirt. Okay. Now, the correct answer was 15. But the real test was that in the middle of this, as they're passing the ball around, there's a guy in the gorilla suit that just starts walking through the crowd. There he is on the right there. Stands right in the middle of the whole thing pounds his chest a couple times and walks off. And at the end, they they actually, they, they get the count of 15, but then they say, did anybody see the gorilla? And almost nobody sees this gorilla. Now you see him because I pointed him out to you. But if you were focused on counting the balls, you would have missed it entirely. It's right under your nose, just like the glasses, the phone, the keys, it's right under your nose and yet you miss it. That's true of what's going on in this passage for the majority of the characters involved. Like the gorilla in the room is, Messiah has come. Messiah has come into the world. That's the headline. hope of centuries, expectation of Israel. But a lot of the characters in this passage miss it. They don't see it. It passes right through their field of view. So I want to briefly look at at, uh, three responses to Jesus that we see in this story. Uh, I want to frame it this way so that you can put yourselves in it. So let me frame it as a Question. Um, Do you treat the Christmas story like Herod as an inconvenient threat or like the scribes as an irrelevant story or like the Magi as an intentional journey? Is this story for you inconvenient, irrelevant, or intentional? And as I go through this, I think it's likely that you might see a little bit of yourself, maybe even in all three of these. But try and gravitate to the one that you think most probably describes where you are with the Christmas story today. Herod sees Jesus as an intentional threat it says here, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, the wise men came from the east. And, and when they say king of the Jews, notice it says that Herod the king, notice the emphasis there, uh, was troubled. Needless to say, he was troubled. Herod's been king for about 30 years, and we know that he's pretty close to the end of his reign, and we also know that towards the end of his reign, he was not an emotionally healthy person. Uh, He was, in fact, caught up in delusions of paranoia. He was convinced that everyone was out to get him. He actually killed his own wife and three of his kids because he believed wrongly that they were in a plot to assassinate him. And I got to imagine that at least part of the reason that all of Jerusalem with him was also worried, was also concerned, is because when you know that your king is kind of on the edge of insanity all the time, uh, you really don't want anybody pushing his buttons, right? Right? And so can you imagine what would happen when this, em, this emissary, this delegation walks into the capital and they're asking, we'd like to meet the king of the Jews, but not, they're not talking about Herod. How do you think like a, a delusional psychopath is going to deal with that? Probably not well. And he plays nice here. But we also know that uh, later, if you just read a few verses later, we find out that in his paranoia, he tragically orders the murder of every child under the age of two in Bethlehem just to cover his bases, just to um, try and get rid of whatever threat might have been there. If Jesus really is king, it means Herod's not. And that's it for us as well too, guys, because you realize that if, if Jesus really is king, then it means you're not. And I know that... None of us probably here have delusions of royalty. We know we're not kings and queens, but we kind of do because we all have a kingdom. We've said this before, that your kingdom is the range of your effective will. It's the places where you say, I get to call the shots here. This is, this is, this is mine to decide. I'm in charge. It's the small things like how you arrange your closet, and it's the big things like to thine own self be true. And it's threatening for someone else to lay claim to your life. And in fact, when God lays claim to your life, what he often does is he brings you to the end of your own rope so that you realize that the range of your effective will wasn't nearly as wide as you thought it was. And then you realize how silly it was that you were sitting on the top of your own hill pretending that you were in charge. And so we surrender to him. And there's probably a lot of people in this room that have already done that. But even for those of you who have, that you've surrendered to Christ, I'm sure that there are areas of your life where you have said, no, not this one, Jesus. You can have my Sunday mornings, but not my Friday nights. I will love this neighbor, but not that one. Like there's areas where we maybe still put up barriers. We say, you know, uh, we, we don't like to be told what to do, but if we have a king, he gets to tell us what to do. That's a terrifying thing, if your king is a tyrant and a despot and a paranoid psychopath. But it's a beautiful thing if your king is a loving father who has a perfect knowledge of who you are in all your mess and loves you anyway and knows who you are and what you were made for and how you will work best and what will give you life. And guys, that is our king. And if that is our king, then surrender is, not scary, it's freedom. The second way that we can approach this Christmas story is this way, as uh, the scribes, as an irrelevant story. And you see here that as, the, as these guys are assembled in verse four, and they're asked, hey, where is the Christ child to be born? Their answer that they give is in Bethlehem. And they say, oh, uh, you Bethlehem in the land of Judah, you're no, by no means least among the rulers of Judah. From you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Herod is bringing in the religious guys, He's asking them a Bible question and they're giving him an answer. They're quoting from Micah 2 and a little bit of 2 Samuel uh, 2 and uh, they say it's going to be Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah comes from, which is six miles down the road. That's all. It's a day trip. Like the Magi are practically there. And yet notice this. The scribes show absolutely no interest in checking it out for themselves. Their answer is purely academic. You think about the Christmas story up to this point, and you think about, well, the angel telling Mary, hey, Elizabeth is part of the story. Like, she's in her six months of pregnancy. Nothing's impossible with God. And it says, Mary arose and went with haste to go see Elizabeth. Then just a little bit, we read this last week, that uh, the angels tell the shepherds, hey, the, down the hill, just a little ways, you're gonna meet the baby. That's who I'm talking about. That's who we're singing about. And they, it says that they go with haste We see throughout this whole Christmas story, everybody's hurrying. They're going with haste to find out what happens in the next chapter, but not these guys. That's my translation right there, the scribes. (laughs) Whatever, right? They're told the Messiah is so close that they could go down and back and still be home for dinner. And instead, they prepare a report. They quote a couple verses. They file it away. That's it. They know more about the story than most of the other characters that we have met in the Christmas story, and yet they, I mean, they are absolutely unwilling to just, I mean, guys, just get on a camel and go down there and see it for yourself. They don't rejoice. They don't ask the Magi for a ride. They, as far as we can tell, they're not even curious. They passed, this is scary, guys, they passed the Bible quiz, but they couldn't care less about encountering God. Right? To them, it's just it's just some verses. Um, I saw this this week. I don't know this guy, but I, I love this on Twitter, X, whatever it's called now. So the greatest threat to Christmas is not secularism or consumerism, but our own boredom with the most thrilling story ever told. It's easy for us any given year for Christmas to just be this, this story out there somewhere that doesn't have a lot of bearing On our life. And you may know the relevant verses, you may be able to kind of quote the basic plot of of Christmas. These guys could do that. They had it all up here, like they would rock Bible trivia night. But the Christian faith isn't ultimately about knowing information, it's about knowing a person. And as with any person that you know, there's information that comes with that, but it comes out of the relationship. God didn't send up a policy manual. He sent a person. He sent his son. The Christian faith is much more than just knowing about God, just knowing about the story. It's about knowing God. And that's why we get so excited about Christmas because that's the invitation that we see there, right? This amazing truth that God wanted to be known and he drew near to us, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus committing to step into our space and our time and to show us what it looks like to live a perfect life. He did that, but then also ultimately being willing not just to step into space and time, but to step into our sin and to be, able, and to be willing to pay the penalty for all the places where we do not live life perfectly. Like that's the story that too easily becomes just information to us if we don't respond to it. And so how do you respond to it? I think for that answer, you don't look at the scribes. You've got to look at the magi. You respond with it as an intentional journey. That's how they treat this. Let me read verse 10. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they, they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh, and being warned in a, stream, uh, in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. There is so much we don't know about these guys. They will be fun to meet one of these days. But here's some things that we do know. We do know that these, uh, there's not three of them and they're not kings. We know that they're, prob- we know they're from the east. They're probably from Persia. We don't know that for a fact. They followed a star west. They've traveled probably a thousand miles. It's been a months long journey. They've been riding bumpy, lumpy camels the whole way, and they have been carrying crazy expensive treasures that I'm sure would make them a target for brigands and thieves. So they probably had a security detail. You never see the bodyguards in the, in the nativity scene. I'm not sure why. This was a dangerous journey. We know that they brought their best. Gold is gold. You guys get that one. Frankincense, we don't probably swap that one as much at Christmas, Frankincense is a, uh, a rare tree resin that's aromatic and it's very expensive. And then myrrh is so expensive that a bottle of this perfume could cost, uh, in, in our dollars, up to $10,000 for a bottle of this. So these guys were not giving stocking stuffers. They were giving some pretty amazing gifts. They were giving their best. When this family, and if you read in the next verses, you'll find out, when this family has to take refugee status in Egypt, these are the kind of gifts that are going to get them through that. But what's most obvious that we know about these guys? <laughs> they're outsiders, way outsiders, and they're not just outsiders. Like they're they're magi, they're astrologers. They deal with magic and the occult. These are not things that the Old Testament uh, smiles on. The Old Testament says, "Don't look at the stars. Don't look at your horoscope. Look to the Lord." And these guys then would be undesirable witnesses, which really kind of backs up everything that we said through this whole story, right? The shepherds as well, peasant Joseph and Mary. These are not the people that you would expect to be central to this story, that God would call as witnesses to his gift. But especially these guys, they're so far outside on the outskirts. But God, think about this, he uses a star to speak to stargazers. He meets them where they are, and they follow it. That's the response, by the way. That's it in one word, follow. They follow as he leads them with a star, and when they go home, they follow as he leads them with a dream, but it's the Lord that's leading their steps the whole way. And while insiders like Herod and his scribes, they choose to sit this one out, here's outsiders that are invited in. As that tells you kind of how Jesus is about to come into this world. That tells you what his whole ministry is going to be about. That's the story of it. Insiders reject him and outsiders love him. Herod's palace, his insider palace, snubs Jesus. And yet six miles down the hill in a little peasant home in Bethlehem, nobility kneels on a dirt floor and bows before him. And throughout Jesus' ministry, we see all of these haves, all of these insiders, the seemingly religious leaders all say no thanks while notorious sinners love him. All the way up to the moment when the religious elite decide that he needs to die and they hang him on a cross and a risen Jesus on the other end of that won't come in and just Avenge himself upon those who killed him, but he'll tell his disciples, No, I want you to go to the fringes. I want you to go into all the world. I want you to go and bring more in. Outsiders as far away in space and time as Charlotte, North Carolina in 2023. And if that doesn't feel like reversal to you, uh, it might be because you think that you're one of the good guys. But we're not if you can relate to the idea of building your own kingdom, if you can relate to the idea of of a kingdom that's at odds with with God's kingdom, then you'll see that in the Bible, it kind of describes all of us as shaking our fists at God and that that's, that's not just rebellion, that's treason. And so the Bible pictures all of us doing that. And the great reversal is that while we were still enemies of God, he drew us in. Christ would die for us. Let me end with this story. Um, I have a friend from Uganda named Charles. Um, Charles has a dark childhood. He grew up uh, in, in, in an African village on the street. Uh, no parents, no home, just ran wild. Drugs, a couple suicide attempts, just a horrific story of his beginning. And there was this one day, there's this uh, missionary team that came in to share the gospel, and they had a, a, a generator where they were going to run a movie and show, the, show the, the story of Jesus and then present the gospel. Um, Charles got a bunch of dirt, and when they weren't looking, he crammed it all into the generator just to destroy it. And uh, while they were fixing it, he filled his pockets with rocks, and while they were up front or while they were fiddling with the generator, he hid behind trees and threw rocks at the missionaries. Eventually, they had to kind of give up trying to show the movie. Clearly, that wasn't going to happen. And so they just started sharing, and they talked about the forgiveness of God. And in that, they said, you know, Jesus was one who even forgave the people who hung him on the cross, saying, forgive them, Father. They, they don't know what they're doing. And they said, do you understand how deep the forgiveness of God goes? That, you know, we, somebody sabotaged our generator today, and we don't know who that is. But, but whoever that is, you realize that Jesus forgives the person who destroyed our generator. Charles was standing in the back of the crowd when that happened. He said, I I turned all my pockets inside out and just let all the rocks fall to the ground. And I said, I'm going to follow that Jesus. And he has ever since. That's the story upending love of God. That a kid on the outskirts of a crowd with pockets full of rocks, hating what was going on, would be drawn into the center of it all. That God would wonderfully disarm us. That he would empty our pockets of all of our rebellious rocks and and let them fall to the ground with a new creation standing in the middle of them. That Jesus would turn foes into followers. That he would make sinners into saints. That he would rescue those who live in darkness. That he would draw them in to live in his light. That's the story upending love of God. Let's pray together. Lord, to whatever degree we've, we've built our own kingdoms, and you know, to whatever degree we've lived outside of relationship with you, uh, Lord, would you disarm us and that we would surrender to follow you, Lord, that all the rocks in our pockets would just fall to the ground, that you would uh, allow this baby in Bethlehem that turned the world upside down to turn us, to turn our hearts upside down, that we would not live for ourselves, that we would live for you and that you would either commit or recommit us by your spirit to living in the light. In Jesus' name, amen.